This season of Smashing the Ceiling is brought to you by the Skylark Collective. Skylark is a new London-based network for women in podcasting, and this year we'll be hosting the inaugural International Women's Podcast Awards at the Albright in London. The collective exists to raise the voices of women in podcasting, both behind the mic and behind the scenes, and to showcase the work of women out there producing incredible audio moments through the medium of podcasting. So if you've got your own podcast or you're thinking of starting one, Head to our website at skylarkcollective.co.uk for more information or follow us on socials at the Skylark Collective. Now, on with the show. This podcast contains sexual references and bad language. As they say on My Dad Wrote a Porno, all the good stuff. And at that point, I felt really, I was, I felt really low. I felt really lost. Um, I didn't have a place to be going and being productive every day. So I was hanging out more on the estate, um, seeing gang violence. And I got caught up in that and I didn't know how to get out. So I wrote my mum a letter and said, look, I'm really struggling. I don't know what direction to go to turn things around. Felt like I was just going downhill. So she sent me to Barbados. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less travelled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. Here's a question for you. Would you describe your mum as sex positive? Most people probably a no. But my guest today, Anita Whitaker, garnered the headline, The Sex Positive Mum You All Wish You Had, after appearing in the Channel 4 show Mums Make Porn. This happened after a television company read her original blog, Only Boys and a Tomboy, describing her family life in Harlesden in London with her four sons and husband, Johan. Anita is an award-winning mentor, speaker, journalist and community liaison. She's run children's nurseries, been a DJ on pirate radio, had a super successful blog and Instagram account and worked in education for 17 years, including stints on the board of charities and other organisations. Anita is a raconteur in the truest sense of the word, and it is no great surprise that she now has her own successful podcast, Anita Whitaker and Friends. This show is all about women with unusual and interesting careers and lives, and Anita certainly fits that bill. This interview is full of rich stories, laughter, and vivid descriptions of both London and the Caribbean, and I fucking loved it. Well, Anita, thank you so much for joining me. I'm absolutely delighted to chat to you. Um, You grew up in and around Harlesden and Brent, and that has been your home for a long, long time. You're really embedded in the community there. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about growing up, Anita? What was it like in your home and what were your aspirations when you were little? Okay, so yes, Harlesden's a very multicultural, multi-diverse, phenomenal bang of a place. Um, Third generation, um, Harlesden resident, my grandparents came to England in the 50s. And my mum joined them shortly afterwards. So I'm first generation UK born. My grand, my maternal grandparents came from Barbados. My father came from St. Lucia. And um, he was the first one um, from his family to come to this country. And his family, the rest of his family followed afterwards. Um, he came over at the age of 16. So those Caribbean kind of island vibes, you know, um, it was all about... Having a quite Caribbean culture, food-wise, music-wise, but my parents were very aspirational. So my grandparents on my mother's side um, came from quite wealthy backgrounds. My grandmother, her father owned what would be the the, the equivalent to John Lewis in Barbados. Um, But she didn't want to be under his roof anymore as young teenagers yeah. So she thought, I'm going to go to England and make my way. And she came over and she she struggled quite a lot. 
Um, mm. she, she was privately educated. You know, she had her shoes and clothes made. She had maids and servants that looked after them in the house and things like that. She had a very grand house. So coming to the UK and being in a small room um, mm. that they had to have their entire family in was quite difficult for her. But there are things that she passed down to my mum that my mum passed down to me. It was that kind of belief in being better than people think you are. Putting yourself in a position of speaking correctly, standing correctly. I learned silver service. Useless to me now. Um, <laughs> and my mum was a beauty queen. So um, she had me walk up and down my garden with books on my head so that I learned how to walk properly. And she wanted me to be this model. I am not by any means. I look nothing like my mother, look everything like my father. He's not ugly, but it can be a bit strange in a girl. Um, <laughs> so um, it was quite, my mum was quite um, strict in how she expected me to be and how I needed to present myself. Um, and I was quite an anomaly, as in uh, I was a tomboy, for one. Um, I'm the eldest of two, uh, the only girl. My brother um, lives in Japan at the moment. He's an animator. Um, and she had these expectations of me being a lady. And there I was in my always choosing navy blue knickerbockers. I had one pair of knickerbockers. I want I think she wanted to throw them away. But once she purchased them, that was it. I wore them all the time. Knickerbockers because I hated skirts and dresses and I was climbing trees and I was running a while round. I was this wild child. She put me in ballet classes. I sucked because I couldn't be dainty. Um, she put me in swimming classes. I just frightened I was going to drown all the time. She tried to get me to do um ice skating and I was awful at that as well um I always felt that I just needed to break out from this prim and proper I always call my mum the black hyacinth bouquet because she's very <laughs> very particular <laughs> and there's always this keeping up appearances and 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 making myself look and be grander than I I possibly felt I was and I didn't think there was anything wrong with not being grand uh, and that's quite an anomaly growing up here in Halston in a, a quite predominantly Caribbean community where um, you had the what we call speaky spokies. So, you know, when you've got the um, I can only do it in a Jamaican accent, um, but where they say, you know, my name is Ayacint. <laughs> and they're trying and they're trying to be posh, as they said, but they've missed the H. It's Ayacint. <laughs> you know, they're, they're really trying to um, work on their um, their. Caribbean accent but in a kind of what they think see as a very British the Queen's Hinglish you know um so it's 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 quite funny that I was always looked about upon as being um quite prim and quite proper um I spoke clearly and um um but I was this wild child I was quite quite a beast as a girl you know if a boy um there was a time where boys would just pinch your bottom and things and some of the girls would giggle hee, 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 and I'd be like pop don't you touch me how dare you invade my space you know and they'd be shocked that I wasn't frightened I was never frightened to square up to a boy um because in some sense I guess I thought I was <laughs> um but yeah so Halston was uh and my mum was quite poor it's a quite poor area my mum was quite poor um, my parents divorced when I was six my father wasn't poor but because of their tumultuous relationship they didn't that wealth that he had as a professional darts player he played alongside Eric Bristow no way wow yeah he was the only black um, darts player to play for Great Britain God. Um, he was extremely successful. He had a car showroom, um, but that didn't translate to the life I was living with my mum in Halston, where he had a place in St. John's Wood. He'd come and pick us up. We'd live that life on a weekend and then we'd mm. be dropped back off. He used to get his clothes tailored from High, High Street Kensington. He took me to Next in High Street Kensington. Um, <laughs> and I was like, ooh, Next. Ooh, this is posh. And I chose all these clothes. And, he, you know, he bought everything I wanted. Um, but he didn't give my mum living expenses for us so we'd have this life on a weekend and then we'd go back home and we'd be having like macaroni cheese one day spaghetti cheese another day back up to macaroni cheese another day and I always I was so sick of it like I love mac and cheese now but I was so sick of it because you know we'd only have meat on the weekends but my mum did the best that she could she worked really hard um and um I was actually quite fortunate um my mum also used to do things like um, get up early in the morning 
and wake us up, you know, and we could smell they'd been chicken fried in the house. Oh, and she'd be like, um, it's we're going out. And we're like, where? And she said, it's an adventure. And she'd packed like this whole lunch bag. And we jumped on a train and she'd say, right, um, choose what station to get off. Like, look out the window. Where do you want to go and explore? So we did a lot of that. We traveled around the UK. We went to every beach. That's um, an amazing thing to do, though. I love that idea of, oh, let's just get off the train where you feel like it. Like, it, that is it was such an adventure phenomenal. when you're a kid. It was phenomenal. I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but I really recognize mm. how that helped to shape who I am now. I spent every holiday in North Wales, in Anglesey, in a little village called Belch. Um, and I went to school there. My mum was studying. Um, she was very much into um, theology and uh, she joined a Christian group and she made friends up there and we just went and spent every summer, every half term. Wow, I had a phenomenal upbringing. Yeah. I had an access to things that a lot of the children in Harleston didn't have. Most of them had never even been to central London. And I grew up with this and that... Sh- showed me what privilege I had and how that created who I am today. And although my mum and I have a contentious relationship because I am wild, I am against the grain oftentimes, you know, I'm still not dressing appropriately for a woman almost 50. Um, (laughs) And um, however, I I appreciate that she gave me the opportunity to have these experiences. Mm -hmm. And the same for my dad on weekends when we were with him, he traveled all over the country um, playing darts and we'd go to the tournaments These ma- it was like a massive pub in like a conference hall and the, the, you know they were up on stage and there were these women with these bifonts smoking back oh you Raymond's daughter you're lovely aren't you and you know I'd sit there with my cocoa yes thank you <laughs> you know and it was a real experience and it helped me to more understand and integrate into British society and understand things a lot differently Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I didn't know I was black until I was nine uh, because I just my family's quite mixed I assumed every family had every shade of people from white all the way to very dark um, and it was pointed out to me when I was at school in in um, in Anglesey and it shocked me but I think in that sense it was one of the things that I think knowing that I wasn't not feeling different from my formative years helped me to be the person I am now. Sorry, so I ramble. It, I oh no, oh my God, I love it. You're such a raconteur. You tell a story in an incredible fashion. And I, I love the idea of you hanging out at like the 70s and 80s equivalent of Ali Pali. Like... <laughs> at the darts you know because actually now darts is massive and it's like it's a huge industry now um and uh, you know I can remember watching Eric Bristow on the telly with my dad I probably watched your dad playing darts but yeah no it's so cool so cool um so when you left school where did you kind of go after that Anita and how did your path kind of take you as you grew sort of into from your teens and and into your 20s and and onto the radio so uh, my teens were interesting Um, I wasn't coping well with my hormonal changes. And um, as I've already said, my mum's quite prim and proper. She didn't really have those conversations about when you um, start your menstrual cycle, all the things that can come with it. So I had a lot of mental health kind of issues where I was just, every time my period was coming, I was this, I was so down. I was so stressed. I was so angry. Mm. Um, So I, I pulled away from a lot of things that I knew and I tried to, Um, attach myself to various groups and this is how um, you see people get involved in gangs and things like that Um, it's trying to find where you feel that you fit and I didn't feel as though I fit in my family upbringing and I didn't quite know how to manage my emotions so uh, at the age of about 15 I kind of started hanging out on local estates now we didn't live on the estate in Halston we li- we always lived like on the outskirt of an estate <laughs> um, however um, in a house and um, I started hanging out with people on the estate the first estate I hung out on was a place called John Buck Roundwood Estate I was probably I was generally the only girl that hung out with all the boys. And I think a lot of people from the outside was probably like, oh, especially in this area where um, unfortunately things like gangbangs were happening quite regularly. Mm. There were lots of assault on girls and things like that um, in the 90s and um, late 80s. But 
these guys were so respectful. They were so, they were really good to me. Do you think they viewed you more like your sister? More like their sister? Um, no, more like a brother. Okay. <laughs> Literally. I mean, the things I heard, like, wow. <laughs> no way to talk in front of me. Like, when other girls came around, because... You know, when there's a when there's an estate full of boys, and these boys are really lovely boys. They were all into martial arts, so they knew a lot about control. They, they knew a lot about awareness of self, um, and a lot of them have become businessmen. Um, so you know, they went on to do amazing things as well. So they were a really positive um, group. Um, we'd go to um, hip hop raves, and we'd go to um, fun fairs together. We'd do all sorts of things together, and that was really a great time for me. But when I hit 15, 16, I kind of felt that I needed I needed to have a boyfriend. And I felt I needed to do that because um, I recognised I had feelings both ways. But I wasn't sure about how to manage that. And hanging out with the boys, like they'd, they'd notice girls and I'd be like, yeah, she is kind of hot still. You know, like, do you want me to talk to her for you? <laughs> um, and I met up with a boy on a different estate because you know the guys that I was friends with they weren't into that um and that was quite a turning point for me um he was the son of a um of a well-known lovers rock singer junior English um they were Jamaican um and the culture believe it or not Caribbean culture is very different so being from Barbados and St Lucia is very different from um being from Jamaican the culture was quite exciting to me at the time um dancing music became started to be, mm. become a thing and I started to get caught up in a lot of the negative things that were happening in the area so um crime I can hold up my hand and say I received a caution and was told to leave Oxford Street and not return for five years <laughs> <laughs> um I, I look back and think oh like if my children my children like I tell my children off for something a lot less than that you know? <laughs> nowhere near as bad as I was at that time um there were a lot I got into a lot of fights so it was I was pretty rough pretty um unsure of myself I really wanted to be accepted um into the local community I always felt that people put me either on a pedestal or kind of put me in a place that I didn't feel like was that I was that person uh so I tried to assimilate as it were um, I found it really difficult. By the age of 17, I was I was stressed. Um, I'd been kicked out of college in my life. I only had one month to go. Oh, um, and at that point, I felt really, I was, I felt really low. I felt really lost. Um, I didn't have a place to be going and being productive every day. So I was hanging out more on the estate, um, being consumed by all the negativity, um, I'm seeing gang violence um, and I got caught up in that and I didn't know how to get out so I wrote my mum a letter and said look I'm really struggling I don't know how to express how I'm feeling I don't know what direction to go to turn things around because it was like a four-year period of seeing it felt like I was just going downhill or three-year period and um, so she sent me to Barbados I thought I was gonna have a holiday I was like oh my gosh, like just to get me away, give me the opportunity to be somewhere else so that I'm not in this space. Um, she, she sent me away. Um, my boyfriend at the time, he was in prison. So she was also like, this is the perfect time to get yeah. her away. I didn't know how to get out of that relationship. I felt quite trapped. And I was sent home to be with my grandparents, my grandmother's, my maternal grandmother's um, brother and his wife. So they were my grandparents' age. So you can imagine it, it was mm. very, very traditional mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in Barbados. But Barbados has got, is very strongly traditional. It was a phenomenal time for me. And I felt as though everything, all the stories that my mom had told me, all the love she had for Barbados, all her like formative years, um, actually started to make sense to me I started to understand where my mum had come from Mm. I started to see the beauty of what she'd left behind she was left quite bitter at having to leave all that and come to a country that she wasn't accepted in Mm. Mm. Um, and I started to realize that and it helped to it helped to ground me quite a bit so a year later got back to England (laughs) after begging to come back home (laughs) Um, so I was just before my 18th birthday I got back and I was different. I felt different. I had, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was aware that 
I was going to do something. You know, they often say a change is as good as a rest, but it sounds like you made a really positive change in your life. And your mom obviously had great foresight in knowing that that was going to be a really beneficial um, time for you, Anita, as well. Mm, mm. It was it was definitely a moment where I was able to appreciate the opportunities that there were mm. in the UK in comparison to what there were in Barbados. Which and is I kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> like... Yes. I got to understand, fully appreciate everything that they do, everything they go through um, and how hard they work. It did change my perspective. It did change my outlook on what I wanted to do next. Uh, so I came home, my boyfriend got out of prison and I got pregnant. I fell pregnant at uh, going up just just at 18, just after I turned 18. And I had my first son um, at 19 years old. That was it. That point I went, ping, life changed completely. Um, I, my mum had started up a, a private preschool and I went to work with her and I found something that I really loved. I loved working with young people. I loved working with children. Um, I was good at it. And I went on to do some um, teacher training. I was raising my son with the support of my mum and her husband. And um, I was doing really, really well in the nursery. So um, I won uh, mentorship accolades um, from Brent Council. Um, Brent Council also used me to speak to um, people that wanted to start up nurseries. My mum helped, um, my mum supported me with raising up within the ranks. Um, I studied like crazy and I moved quite quickly to the point where then we were able to open another three nurseries. Um, and, Incredible. Um, yeah, well, I mean, even though I got kicked out um, when I left college, like I, I got kicked out the last month, I learned a lot about business and finance mm-hmm. in that first year. So I had um, business knowledge, I had accounting knowledge that I ended up putting to use then to support the growth of my mum's business. Um, I then continued studying. So I had a baby whilst I was studying constantly. Um, I did everything from business, um, uh, um, business management, team leadership, teaching I did I did all of them at the same time my mum supported um looking after my son whilst I was studying so I would study um um, through the evening and late at night go partying and then come back and get back to studying then get up in the morning and go into work and do a full days of work um you know so I got I did lots of lots of training through those first uh few years I was I, I became like a speaker for the profession um amongst Broad Council because uh, these these nurseries are in Harleston. Uh, so when I was doing the parents evening and I was presenting and I was talking, I was about 23. And this gentleman said, you know, you've got a great voice for radio. You should do this, you know, and you really articulate yourself well and you're so personable. So I went to the local radio station and knocked the door and it was a pirate radio station. It was all that I knew. Yeah. Um, you know, in Halston, there were like, there, I don't know, there must have been 17 pirate radio stations. They were big. Everybody knew them. I thought, well, it's, it's a radio station. I didn't understand the difference between pirate and, um, you know, the, the mainstream radio stations, other than the fact that these radio stations play like a specific kind of music. And that's it. I didn't I didn't know any difference. So I knocked the door and I was like, hello. So I'd like to come and learn how to be on radio so I can make teas and coffees until I learn what to do. <laughs> I love the ballsiness of that. And that's something I talk quite a lot about on this podcast of like, you know, knocking down the door to get what you want. And like yeah. last week I was chatting to someone who said that they wrote to the first person that mentored them and asked them if they would give them help. And I'm like, you just got to take those opportunities sometimes. And if yes. that's what you want to do, just walk in there and ask for it, which I fucking love that you did. <laughs> it's a, do you know what? It gets even worse because there, there's, I mean, <laughs> the guy the guy that owned the radio station is a pirate radio station. So there's a, a, an element of, um, you know, law breaking happening already. And then here comes this gruff Jamaican guy. Well, you want to do a narrator. <laughs> and I was just like, um, so I just want to, um, I don't know anything about being on radio, but I just want to make teas and coffees. We're not having a tea and coffee here. You have, you have records? And I was like, um, well, my mum's got some records. Uh, bring bring a box of records on Monday. Let me see you then. And I was like, okay. And that was Not it. Realising that Monday was my first show. 
And then I turned up on the Monday with this record box and I'd borrowed music from records from my mom. I had a few records of my own that I bought in our price many years before. And then I, I knew a few DJs and, I, and they'd given, they'd lent me some records. And so I thought I was just going to, you know, learn how to use things. And he said, right, this does that, this does that. Make sure you turn on the advert at this time. Press that and you're ready to go. And I was like, go where? <laughs> he says, you go live. Yeah, idiot or something. <laughs> and it was the most phenomenal experience ever. To the point where I ended up being there for eight years. Um, I was mentored by dancehall um, DJ um, Robbo Ranks who um, went on to be quite big on BBC Extra. When he first started at BBC Extra, he, he suggested um, that I join them because they were looking for black women. Um, they phoned me up and I went, oh, but no, I'm not a real DJ. I, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> and I turned it down. And at that time, I was pregnant with my second son as well. And it just felt like it was too much. I was pregnant yeah, with my yeah, yeah. son. I was still having the nurseries. We had three by that time. And it just felt like, you know, I was, it was do, do, I was doing too much. And this felt like a hobby. I wasn't a real DJ. So um, were you doing nurseries during the day and DJing at night, Anita? How, is that how, how did you juggle that that kind of okay. business and the radio for eight years by that time we had the nursery so I wasn't so much working with the children so I had okay. the flexibility of popping out so I'd pop out and do my radio show go back into work um, and I was studying still at the same time always studying um, and teaching others and then um, I was forced to DJ at clubs every so often. So everybody from the station used to have to do these um, these DJ nights. And um, I was on a radio station that was predominantly dancehall, reggae, roots, revival music. And here I was with my R&B, hip hop, jazz. And I'd throw in a bit of um, Barbara Streisand and some <laughs> classical music. And for some reason, people absolutely loved it. You know, there's Beanie Man on one corner, you've got Capleton in another corner, and then you've got Spice Girls blasting through the head, through the speakers. And I started to understand then the culture and why they enjoyed the differences they played, that I played, that actually, you know, it was also something, they still grew up with pop and things like that, and they enjoy that element, even though reggae and, and dance was at their core. They loved when I played classical music. I'd get, yeah. It was so funny, you'd get people just phone in the studio and, you know, you you are in charge of everything. You're your producer, you know, the DJ, you're the, the you're, your assistant and you answer the phone and someone will chat, just shout, pull up that tune there and then they'd hung up. <laughs> like, okay, press stop on the turntables and rewind <laughs> that track. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a really phenomenal experience. It was, for me, that was my hobby. That was something that I love to do outside of my work, um, you know, looking after my children, that was my, that was my safe haven, that was my space. And once I got that mic, and I was in control of what I could say, and how I could educate people, and I felt like a strong affinity to sharing information. So I do, I, I, I started to produce an actual show. Mm -hmm. I would format the show. I would have a part where I do the, the weather, local news, national news, um, conversation points and get people to phone in and, and tell me you could put them on live and um, you could you could have conversations with people. And that's where I realised I wasn't so much of a DJ when it comes to the music. Um, I was a button presser. Um, but I was I was a I was a broadcaster. I was a presenter. When I recognised that, I realised I wanted to do more of that. So I went to college and did an access to media and um, where I did, um, I learned about journalism, uh, photography, semiotics, I hated that, <laughs> um, um, you know, print journalism and all different um, mediums, film. And I decided to go to university at the age of, uh, I can't remember now, how old was I? Um, but um, uh, I think I was about 30 by then. And um, I went to Farnham University to study broadcast journalism. And you mentioned your husband just briefly in passing there. He is yes. just prominent in everything you do. Um, Anita's yes. blog and your Instagram, Only Boys and Tomboys, is, is all about your family life. You've got four kids now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you met your husband and um, 
how you took the decision to to expose your family, I suppose, to the media, because I think making that decision is quite a big one. You know, some people would have views about um, having your kids on social media or that kind of thing. How did you kind of come to that? And, and do you want to tell us a little bit about becoming the first black family in a TV commercial? Because I'm really intrigued by you guys being the faces of Vodafone as well. Yes. Uh, so I met my husband when I met him. I was a mother of two. OK. And uh, I'd. On, somebody reminded me of this the other day, one of my old staff. I was taking a lunch break and went to the local record store, which I spent a lot of my time in. This was just before I decided I was going to go into journalism as um, altogether. And um, I, I went to the record store and I used to just hang out there and find out what the latest trends were, do a bit of networking and just have general, just have a laugh. And it, it was my opportunity to get back to that kind of tomboy roots because it was always full of men and I'd be able to crack jokes and things. Record and, stores were like a real thing. They're like bookshops, aren't they? They're like, if you've yeah. got a good one in your community, they're such a, like a hub. I went to our local bookshop yesterday. It was the first time I've been since lockdown. I was like, oh my God, I love this place. And I think record shops have that kind of similar vibe, don't they? It does because you, you have to you have to spend time there so you spend time there you're listening to music you're you it starts it sparks up debate it's a bit like um like a bit like that black barbershop kind of vibe it's where the community comes together and has conversation now in walks this guy that clearly isn't from the area um you know my husband's mixed race so this is fair-skinned guy quite quite preppy looking in dress and things walks in and i was like oh hello you know i was just like good looking guy <laughs> you know um and I'd, I'd come out of a five year a really uh violent five year relationship so um I was at a point where I didn't want to be in a, any relationships um but I saw him and I thought oh he's pretty he looks like the kind of guy I could do with my eyes open so we we met there and that sparked our conversations we just for about two months we were just having conversations and I really felt so comfortable with him and my heart just jumped and I said to my friend, I'm going to end up marrying this guy because he's the first guy that I've ever, ever been with that's had the same value as me. Mm. That if a friend needs something, it doesn't matter you do what it. you've got planned, yeah. you just do it. Yeah. You know, um, and that for me was that turning point. And from that day where we had that date, we've been together um, every day since. Because we've, we've, you know, we've gone places, we've each gone on holidays and things, but we have been together ever since. And um I've grown with him and I've helped and he's helped me to remember who I was as a child that 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 Anita that hadn't been influenced by the outside world that in that Anita that has that tomboy spirit that has that adventurous spirit that that childlike um view of the world of exploring and connecting um and being around people so uh he and he fell in love with my children he married my children my two elder boys as much as he married me and that for me has been phenomenal and I'm not saying you know it hasn't been easy oh we've been through many things you have to wait for my book to come out before you hear those stories but we've been through an awful lot but what we've come to is a space of understanding the love and respect we have for each other and the impact we make as a couple on our immediate family on our extended family and on and on the world as a whole mm. that once we're out there we really do seem to people seem to gravitate towards and everybody says oh my gosh there's just something about you two and I'm always like we're not perfect we are not perfect don't you know this isn't the Instagram life we're not we're not perfect I keep it really real um, but we've made a commitment, not just a marriage commitment, but a, a lifelong commitment to each other to work through anything that we come through. But when we had our first son um, together um, so, and our first, third child as a whole, Alexander, he was born um, quite small. He had various issues. Um, and, I'd, and I was at university at the time. I took out a year to have him and went back in. <laughs> When I was studying at university, I was I, I more I I went close to digital um, journalism more, um, and I really enjoyed being able to write my story, and that's where I started blogging. 
And then I, I started to think of, well, what could I write? And he always said, it's got to be something that you're passionate about, something mm. that you love. I'd been in nurseries for so long. My life had been about children and education and my family circumstances and being in that university where it wasn't diverse at all. I recognised that I needed to tell the story from a black perspective and from a very mixed family perspective. My family's very, very mixed. My mum's husband is Indian, um, born in Chennai. My, my, my brother lives in Japan, speaks fluent Japanese, is married to a Japanese woman. Um, my, par- my grandparents are mixed race. Um, my, my, my husband's dad is um, white from Kent. So we, we are a very mixed and eclectic family, but I do recognise that when people see us from the outside, there is an expectation of who we are and who we should be. So that's where the blog came out to say, do you know what? Yes, I love my rice and peas and jerk chicken, but I do throw in my Yorkshire puddings and my roast potatoes with it, you know, and that I was raised here in the UK. I was raised here in England um, and in Wales, you know, that I do understand and respect British culture, but there are many places that I go to. I've still got that explore exploration kind of thing within me that my mum used to take us on these these journeys outside of London and I do that with my children and we go out to places where people just stare at us and that's a very real thing when you're leaving the city people stare like crazy so I thought we need to get in these people's homes we need to show them that we are just people with a bit of melanin that makes us look super tanned we are still deep down, we're still, um, you know, red blooded, we're still, you know, we, we've got all the same organs. Um, uh, and I've got, I've, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have lots of different cultures that have raised me, you know, Welsh, um, Barbadian, St. Lucian, uh, Jamaican in the end, you know what I mean? Um, you know, British and I've um, um, English and I've had so many experiences that I wanted to be able to share the normality of us and because we were we ended up being such a big family as well you know four boys <laughs> you know and my husband and I and my my eldest son was six foot two by the eight by the time he was 17 so you can imagine we go out to places and people would be um quite wary of my boys um people be wary of me I, I got in a lift with somebody dressed in a suit with my um I had a Louis Vuitton bag uh, and a woman pulled her handbag closer to herself and pulled herself into the corner of the lift. And there might have been various different reasons why she did that. But I felt quite consciously, darling, my handbag probably costs more than yours. I don't want yours. You know, come on, dear. Let's not do this to me. Uh, you know, and I, how dare you in, imply that I could possibly be a threat to you or interested in you. So there was there was a real element of recognising that outside of the city and in the suburbs um, of London, that people were quite wary of me and my four sons. And I wanted to be able to have the voice to talk and show um, I hurt just like you. My children drive me nuts just like yours do. Um, I cry. I laugh. We are, I don't want to say normal because I hate being normal. I love being an anomaly. Um, but we are just human beings like everybody else's. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. When I met you, one of the things that you just blew me away with, um, which I wanted to chat about a little bit today, was when you dropped into the conversation that you'd been on a program called <laughs> Mums Make Porn, which I just found amazing. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what that concept was, how that opportunity came about, and how the boys took that when you got involved? Okay, so yes, it was it was a lot of fun. A, doc- a three-part docuseries for Channel 4. Uh, when the team the team contacted me actually they put a they I think they put like a I'm allowed to say it now they put a, a a beacon out for people to you know be part of this program you know be be sex positive have um, well not sex positive actually they just wanted to have conversations around sex this was a, the original um, advert that went out and they're looking for uh, mums of teenage children so um, apparently they've been looking for quite some time about six seven months down the line they hadn't quite got the quote unquote black mum <laughs> um, and somebody that was they didn't quite have somebody that was as open about sex as I am so I've had various conversations about sex on my blog uh, conversations I've had with my boys I've got one boy that's extremely well endowed and I had to have a conversation with him about what it would be like when he first um, has sex and that he has to be aware because he's so um 
he's he's such a loving person that I recognize that he could actually hurt somebody for their first sexual experience. If he hurt somebody during his first sexual experience, he'd be mortified. Mm. So I need, and and I I also recognize that when you're grown, when you grow up with something, you don't know any different. So he didn't know he was unusually large. Mm. I mean, by the time he was 13, he was double the size of my um, husband, Flaccid. Really unusually big. Um, none of the other boys have it like that. So I wrote about that. And apparently they came across my blog. They'd read that and like, ask the lady. Uh, so they emailed me and, and the, the one of the runners emailed me. Hi, Michael, if you're hearing this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I ignored the email. I got another email and then they phoned me. They got my phone number and they phoned me. And it's like, oh, hi, I'm da, da, da. Um, you know, uh, we'd like to see if you're interested in having a conversation about porn, etc. And I said, no, no, I'm good. Um, and they, he phoned me, must be about four times. Are you, are you sure? And I got another email and they sent me statistics of um, young people that 11 year olds that had been um, treated were being treated for addiction to porn. Mm-hmm. The fact that um, children were being able to access hardcore porn within two clicks of, um, of, of a button, a mouse, they use the word mouse. Um, but for me, all the statistics, the fact that, you know, there's like a 96 point something percent of um, free porn is violence against women. All those things made me feel like, okay, this is something serious. They wouldn't tell me what um, network it was for. Um, and I just had an open, candid conversation the way I'm having now when we talked about everything. And um, I'm bisexual. So um, I was, um, you know, it took me some years to identify and, and agree that I was bisexual. I had female partnership in between um, my my 20s, early 20s. But I met my husband and I fell in love with a man and I that was it. I'm still attracted to women. We both check out women on a regular basis. Um, and I was very open and candid with them um, about how I talk to my boys about sex. So they were like, yes, please, you know, we need to have you. And I was like, ah, I need you to tell me what network it is before I actually agree to do that. I was the only one that knew about the porn industry and the, the, the only one that used porn um with my husband for very you know um I, I tap into paid porn though please pay for it um you know that way you get some really good quality erica lust is phenomenal um joy joy bear productions they're phenomenal i like porn for the tantric off, um, offerings and learning how to connect through tantric sex so um yeah i i got to do that and i ended up being the headline read i think it was um um, Anita is the black mum we all want to have the black the, the sex positive black mum that we all want to have as a mum and I was like wait what I didn't know I was an anomaly until I spoke out why are we fighting to speak about sex I don't get it like that's how mm. we all got here mm. um, and it was it wasn't until I did the docuseries that I realized how important it was that I was able to speak and that I was part of the process. Mm. There was somebody that, like me, that um, advocated for um, gay sex, for one. I mean, there's a point where in the docuseries, I go, um, we're talking about different sex that we should put on the board. And I'm like, anal. I practice anal sex with my husband. For me, it wasn't just about the male and female anal sex. And I think the women took it wrong when I suggested it because it was like, oh, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to encourage mm-hmm. our daughters to do that. I'm like, yeah, but I've got sons that may want to also engage in anal sex and they're gay friends. And actually, we're, if we don't add anal to our conversation, we're cutting out an entire group of people. And I don't think I don't think they thought of it on that line and they hadn't realized they hadn't thought about the wider picture. You know, all they thought about in the whole process was the boy and the girl. Mm. And when the boy and the girl, when the boy and the girl meet each other, and the boy and the girl, and I was like, what about the girl and the girl? What about the boy and the boy? What about? And it was and I was saying, you know, as parents, as mums, what we need to fully understand is that we are influence of our children. Yeah. And if we are too influential and passing on our personal thoughts and not allowing our children to have space to speak out and have their own thoughts and feelings about what's normal to them then we're kind of we're putting our children in a dangerous situation 
Mm. They don't have somewhere safe to come and talk to us because we've already made them feel that we, they, we'd be against something. Then they don't have that neutral, loving advice. And how did the boys feel about um, the documentary and the blog and, and themselves being um, part of that, I guess? Like, did, did you discuss that with them in advance or how have they responded to your involvement in the sex positive movement? Um, so they, um, my now 18 year old, uh, my second son was on the doc series. So he talked in as part of the show. Um, they all chose, you know, all of us were allowed to have a, one of our teenagers come on if they wanted to. So he's very open. He's a debate club major, all the rest of it. So very articulate. And he, he talked um, as part of the show. My eldest son, who was in his 20s, he's 27 now, was mortified. <laughs> Like, that's the response I would expect you see is like oh my god mom you're so embarrassing I can't believe you're doing this you know what's so funny no he he didn't say I can't believe you could I when are you gonna stop doing stuff like this you're my mother yeah my mother <laughs> my mum was mortified she was absolutely mortified and she only came around when one of her church friends phoned her and said that was your daughter was so good I'm going to tell my daughter to watch it so that she can she knows how to talk to her children L- literally the mums and I were investigating the porn world um and we were for me my idea was about um opening it and teaching other parents so that they were aware what was out there and how to help support their children mm-hmm. um, it culminated in us creating our own film the idea was that young people used um porn as an educational tool and if we were going to create a porn film that was educational what would we create and then we we learned behind the scenes and I was the director for the girl on girl um movie and um we were creating something that had all the things that we want our children to learn so Mm. connection um um, consent protection um conversation all those kind of things was in the film so Mm. that was the basis of the program we answer questions about sex and things at the dinner table like if it comes up it's answered it's not a thing at mm. our house there's no it doesn't seem extraordinary so mm. it just went over their heads oh it's just another thing mum's doing mm. you know she talks about stuff like that all the time so no I'm not interested I'm not at that stage so I, don't, I couldn't care less sort of thing you know so yeah they, they were so, all the family was supportive yeah amazing amazing and just to wrap up Anissa you've been um super involved in the community in Harlesden and the area that you've been living in for a long long time um you've been involved with charities in the area there was a homeless charity called Lyft that you've been a trustee of you've been a governor at schools what do you think that has added to your career in terms of the skills that you've learned that you've been able to build into other areas and and also what it's given to you as a contributor to your to your community I actually became a school governor because of my son who had a very difficult last year at primary school. There was a racial attack on him from uh, one of the teachers and he was backed up. Um, That teacher was backed up by the head and they kind of, it was a Catholic school, they closed ranks. And I just felt that he's so bright. And I see the statistics that boys of Caribbean descent, Afro-Caribbean descent are failing nationally in schools. And I did not want that to be him. I saw all these statistics and I was like, I need to put myself in a position of power and understanding to support him and his peers um, in school. And I became the uh, governor at Queen's Park Community School. I was there for four years. It was a lot of work. <laughs> I was the chair. I was the chair of curriculum and standards. I was the qualities officer. I was on the pay review board. I was on the um, exclusions board, and it, I, I was very active. But I recognised being the only black female on a board of fourteen, um, being um, one of two black um, governors on the board in a school that is so multicultural, um, I had a duty to be there and to help be the voice and be able to support people in understanding what some of the issues are, what the issues I've seen growing up, the kind of issues that I had, even though I had quite a strict, um, very balanced, beautiful um, upbringing, there were some 
thing in there that kind of I was looking for something else. I was looking for some validation and how you can get caught up in things um, and how easy that is to happen here when you are a minority and that the minorities kind of group together. Um, and I, I realized later on in life, I didn't I, I didn't have to just be with black people. I can, you know, I went through a stage of feeling I had to just be with black people to to be successful, but that's that changed, and I was back to who I was as a child, where I just recognised that everybody's got everything in them, and let's mm. just all do this together. So mm. community is extremely important to me. We are pack people. We need other people to be around us to succeed and to survive and various people in the community wear different hats and can support you in different ways we've all got our role to play i understood my standing in the community my understanding the community my being involved helps to raise the expectations of me and my children but also helps to raise my community's understanding of each other and love of each other as a whole and once I can put that into place, I recognise how the community then engulfs my children and loves my children mm. and that my children never feel that they have to move outside into a negative space because there's so much positivity around them. And we all look out for each other. And I yeah. think that those are my core values. That's my purpose. And that's what I want to instill in my children to understand the importance of feeding into a space that will feed back into you. Oh my God, I could listen to you all day. Um, <laughs> that is so, so good. And and just uh, wrapping up, like you've obviously got your your own podcast, give that a little plug, Anita Whisker <laughs> and Friends, um, where, you know, you're talking to people from within the community. What is coming up for you and where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your work and, and what you're up to? Oh my goodness. Okay. There is so much more. Um, the podcast is relaunching. I'm doing some academic um, programs to support children from underprivileged backgrounds into various academic areas like architecture. So I'm working with um, Sabine Stort from the Bartlett um, School of Architecture at UCL. And mm. we're going to be doing a course for 10 to 17 year olds in architecture. I'm speaking to Toby York from Metropolitan University to start um, providing accounting courses for mm. 10 to 17 year olds. And I'm and, and the podcast will be relaunching, still talking to local people and inspiring people um, that live in places like Halston to say, you know, it, it, your postcode where you live doesn't matter so much. You can be the best that you can be. We're living in a global society right now. The COVID has shown us that we can connect to people all over the world very effectively. So use your foundation as your jump off. Be the best you can be create who and what you want to be thank you so much for your time I've just loved this interview I feel like it's such a privilege to run a podcast when you get to have conversations like this isn't it but, um... <laughs> that's all for this week if you've enjoyed this episode please just share it wherever you can on your own social media and if you found the podcast interesting or useful then do please tell a friend because we are always keen for new listeners if you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then we'd love you very much as it genuinely does help other people to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.